Amen. All right. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4, we're in verse 20 to 24 tonight. And the message is entitled, The New Man's Life. This is part two. The walk of the believer in the love of God takes two chapters and nine verses. From chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 9. We have looked at the admonition of Paul to Christians to not live like the Gentiles any longer which was characterized by three things in our last study, verse 17 through 19. In 17, we saw the prohibition of living like the heathen. In 18, the condition of the life of heathens. And in 19, the destruction to the life of heathens. Now we want to look at the positive side of the new man to live like Christ, which again is characterized by Three things. Let me read here. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And so... Here, the positive side of the new man to live like Christ is characterized by, first, the affirmation of living like Christians, verse 20. Second, the explanation for living like Christians in verse 21. And thirdly, the transformation, living like a Christian, verse 22 to 24. So the affirmation of living like Christians comes first, verse 20. Listen again. But you have not so learned Christ. The Apostle Paul verified the condition of new life for the believers here. Notice Paul used the word but, again indicating the sharp contrast between the life of the Gentiles that he has just prohibited to live after any longer, verse 17, 19. They were not to walk any longer in the futility of mind, verse 17 said, referring to the senseless and nameless um, um, life without any goals, a low quality of life to an extent. Living according to one's own morals, one's own purpose, one's own will, not God's. And so one who really doesn't think or look to or depend on God at all. And he says, you used to be like that, Now you're not. Notice the reason he states this is that their understanding, the activity, the process and product of their mind is no longer void of the light of God. We saw that in verse 18. Before we were Christians, we didn't have the light of God. We might have been had some morals, some ethics, but we didn't have the light of God to calibrate our our conscience. They are no longer ignorant to the life of God, affecting their intellect, emotion, and will. They're no longer under the spiritual blindness of their heart. Um, A radical regeneration has taken place in that new birth. Now, they no longer had to experience the consequence of bondage of their sin nature any longer 
as verse 19 declared. They don't have to be there anymore. No longer able to sense the destructiveness of sin. No longer giving themselves over to understanding um, or, uh, or to giving themselves over to unrestrained, reckless sin and unconcerned about the, um, the thoughts and opinions of others. Unashamed. Doesn't matter. Who cares? What's that to you? And that's the society that we're living in today. That's the society that Paul was living then. You know, you ask some people, if you ask young people, why, why do you conduct yourself morally that way? What are you talking about morally? They're not kidding. You see, I've told you often, the Trojan horse to uh, the United States is public school education. So much indoctrination has gone on with relativity that uh, children and young adults can't think critically anymore. <clears throat> they have no basis, no balance, no checks, no, no, no nothing. And they're not kidding when they say, what's wrong with that? They're so far gone away from the understanding of good and evil. Isaiah says they'll call good evil, evil good. They do that today. In fact, the good are punished and penalized, marginalized. The evil are paraded and exalted and embraced. And I don't think I'm exaggerating either. Now, notice the Apostle Paul indicated <clears throat> the person responsible for the new life of the believer. Two words, learned Christ. Paul speaks with total confidence about what he is saying about the Ephesians. The word learn is the aorist tense, a past fact taking place. There's no doubt in this. It took place in the past. Remember, Paul was a pastor of the church of Ephesus for three and a half years or so. And he knew many of these Gentiles who had come to Christ. He said that in, in uh, Acts 20.31, he spoke about it um, as he gives his um, witness to the Ephesian elders of his faithfulness and warns them. And he taught them night and day, holding back nothing that was profitable for them. He taught them privately and publicly from house to house, Acts 20, 20 says. So he's not speaking to a group of people that he is not familiar with. He, he was their pastor. He told them that he was uh, not guilty of the blood of any man, for he had not shunned to declare to them the full counsel or the entire counsel of God in Acts 20, 27. He withheld nothing of the word of God. He gave him the whole thing. He didn't select. He didn't say good nice little sermons so people wouldn't think he was a bad guy. He just went through it and spilled it out. Remember that Ephesus was a thriving church. He said this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 8 through 9. He says, um, but I will tarry in Ephesus till Pentecost for a great and effective door has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. I like the way he defines an open door by God. We would say, well, an open door is we had no obstacles. Paul says, great, fervent, open door. What's that? Many adversaries. Wow. Demetrius, the uh, silversmith, as you know, of the goddess Diana, accused Paul before the riotous crowd the following in Acts 19, 26-27. He says, moreover, you see... And you hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, that Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are unmade by, with hands. So not only is 
this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Paul affected all of Asia, the trade, the idolatry. These are the people that he's speaking to. They knew. Paul is speaking literally about their new birth. That's what he's talking about. Learned Christ. The phrase learned Christ appears only this time in the New Testament. It's found nowhere else. The phrase is the result of responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation, the Jew first and the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, the just shall live by faith, according to Habakkuk 2, 4. That's it. It's the gospel, the greatest miracle in the world. We just studied Jonah, started Sunday. What's the great miracle in the world? Not, not the fish, not, not, not the, the storm, not the calming of the storm, not the gourd, not the worm, but the salvation of the entire population of Nineveh. Salvation is the greatest miracle you will ever see. Absolutely the greatest miracle. Now, the tense as we've pointed out, is the eros. In fact, the fact that it took place in the past and is active, still going on. The present person here is the personal object of, of Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. The word learn there means to be informed or increase in knowledge. But the context does not indicate mere learning about a person. The context is that Christ is the subject and personal object of the preaching that has been believed, embraced, and received as Savior being the content of the message. He is everything. He is the content. He is the, the messenger. He is the message. He is everything. The red thread runs from Genesis to Revelation. The word Christ, as you know, is Christos. It means the anointed is the title for Messiah. The article is present. The Messiah. Indicating deity. Jesus was and is the Christ. The Messiah of God. You know, the first believers were called um, those on the way. It was in Antioch that they first were called Christians. Christ-like. Paul persecuted those on the way, the book of Acts says. The way where? Way to heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. So if people want to get to heaven, there's only one person that can get them there. And there's a specific requirement to agree with God that you're a sinner, that you're under the wrath of God, and that Jesus died for your sin and rose from the dead and made full payment for your sins. And if you will call upon his name, then you can claim the forgiveness of your sins that he might regenerate you and make you a son or daughter. Wow. The Christian life is too often defined by unbelievers as well as some believers always in the negative. Just what you don't do. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't drink, and I don't go out with girls that do, or guys, right? And so, it's much like the Pharisees. Now, 
even though some of that is true or all of it, it depends the attitude in which we're declaring it. We don't, I don't do a lot of the things I used to do, not because I think I'm better, it's because I know they're destructive to my life and it brings shame to Jesus Christ and I don't have to do them anymore. I certainly have the potential capacity. We're going to see this with the old man and the, and the new man. But I have a choice now. I can't plead ignorance. I can't blame anybody. I can't excuse myself as we're going to see. Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. The Christian life is not in just doing certain good things also, but being Christ-like. I've told you often, um, we shouldn't ask people if they're Christians anymore because everybody says yes. You should ask them, hey, are you Christ-like? And they go, what? They'll think about it. Because that's what Christian means. Christ-like. It begins with um, an invitation to salvation, as I've stated. As we cease from our own works. Listen to Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. That's how it begins. It began like that in your life, in mine. Maybe you're here tonight, you don't know Jesus Christ. That can be your beginning. It is to continue throughout our life. To teach others. Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men, Matthew 4.19 says. Having known what it is to be lost, having experienced the pain, the destruction, the loss of certain things in life and being redeemed and forgiven and cleansed and poured out by the grace of God, then I would want others to have the same thing because I certainly did not deserve it. But also to be an example of Jesus who suffered for us, leaving us an example to follow his steps, 1 Peter 2.21. So the Christian life is not just pie in the sky. It's not just when I feel good. It's not just when things are going well. It's through thick and thin. That's what we say statements in marriage, thick and thin, you know. Maybe in the past, maybe not today. But, um, but it's a carryover to our relationship with Jesus Christ because it's a marriage, right? I mean, the only thing is we never have to worry about Jesus being a bad husband. When something goes wrong, it's never his fault. <laughs> it's mine. And so this is the affirmation of living like a Christian. Now notice, secondly, comes the explanation for living like a Christian in verse 21. The Apostle Paul added an explanation to the affirmation of verse 20. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, this is called a parenthetical conditional clause. This is a clause of reality, not of intention to imply any doubt. So it's an affirmation. This clause is to remind the Ephesians of the reality of their salvation. The phrase, if indeed, could be translated in as much or since you're born again. Since you are living for Christ. The believers at Ephesus had 
heard the voice of Christ and had come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, listen to the words, and you have heard. The Ephesians had learned Christ, as we've seen, as they heard the gospel preached through Paul in verse 20. Paul was the vessel of God, and they responded to the gospel, but it was the voice of Jesus they heard. This is the intention here in the verse. The tense is the indicative errors active, an actual past fact occurring. They really did hear, and they really did repent, and they really got saved. The Ephesians have heard him, he says. Again, Paul was the vessel, and perhaps others. But it was, again, the voice of Jesus they heard and responded in obedience after salvation. You see, God uses people. God's preaching, I'm teaching right now. But if you're open to God, God's going to speak to you. If you're not open to God, you're just going to hear a man and you're going to say, when's this guy going to shut up so I can get out of here? Too many people chase after speakers and preachers and, and, and they are impressed by them. And they aren't really, uh, don't have any intent to hear the voice of God. They're looking for the next thrill or the next great speaker or the next new little theology. This is also the indicative errors, active tense, the past fact that took place. The Revised Standard Version translates this, you have heard about him instead of heard him. There's a big difference. You haven't just heard about him, you heard him. <laughs> okay? That's just information. Heard him, that's relationship. That's the new birth. Notice the Ephesians have been taught by him also. The preposition by is the Greek word en, E-N. A better translation would be in. In means union with Christ. For the third time, Paul, or others being the vessels, spoke, taught, and yet the voice they heard was Jesus teaching the believer. And Jesus is faithful to always teach us. When you sit alone, you read the word of God. He comforts you. He reproves you. He rebukes you. When you sit in the church, you're listening to a study. If your heart is open, God will guide, direct, stop you dead in your tracks. And you will know that God spoke to you. The non-believer thinks we're crazy. That's okay. But they can't deny the difference between our lives and theirs. Our joy, our worldview, our perspective. Jesus is the teacher in the teaching of himself whenever the word of God is being taught, faithfully and biblically. If the man stands in a pulpit or wherever it is and he declares the word of God faithfully, inductively, in context with the culture and the grammar, and proclaim that God honors his word above his name. And he will be the teacher for those who have an ear to hear and a heart to be touched.
It has all to do with me. If I'm open. The personal pronoun again is emphatic here. They were taught by Jesus. The tense now is the indicative heiress. Passive tense. A past fact that took place in the person receiving the teaching. So all these things that he's talking about are realities of fact. They're not hypothetical. They're not an opinion. And then notice the Apostle Paul qualified that what they had heard and were taught was the truth. As the truth is in Jesus. How often you've heard people tell, well, how do you know the Bible is true? Jesus is God. He can't lie. It's real simple. He says that the truth is in Jesus. Paul now combines the name Jesus and the title Christ. Jesus, as you know, the Greek name for the Hebrew name Joshua. Jesus emphasis, emphasizes his earthly humanity here by the name uh, as man uh, through Paul. And that's the emphasis. He was a literal, historical human figure. Um, Christ emphasizes his deity as God. Uh, the God-man, John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14, 1 Timothy 3.16, Philippians 2.5 down to 11, over and over again. 1 John, verse 1 down to 3 of chapter 1. Now the name Joshua is a contraction of Yahweh Shua, and Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus was the God-man through the Incarnation. And so you need both. You need God and man. And being God, he became man. And he took on the sins of the world. And he died. And that blood joined us. He took one hand with as a man, the hand of man, and the hand of God with the Father. And he died and he bled and he joined us together by the atonement. He said one day, which of you convicts me of sin? You see, we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Sinless. He was the Lamb of God, John 1.29, to take away the sins of the world. No one else. Notice Paul is declaring that since Jesus is the incarnation of God, he cannot lie, but teaches only what? Truth. Absolute truth. Stop and think about it. When Jesus said that he was the only way, and if you don't come through him, you go to hell. Opinion? Exaggeration? Mean? No. Nope. Absolute truth. The word truth, Alicia, means the embodiment of truth in any matter under consideration, be it pertaining to God, man, sin, or Satan. He is the very embodiment of truth, and when he speaks, he speaks in absolute truth. You never, no one would ever have to, not that they didn't, I'm sure they did. But no one ever had to say to Jesus, just a minute, did you say, did, did I hear you right? And he go, oh, you know what, I, 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 I misspoke. Um, <laughs> no. He never made a mistake. Never spoke anything but truth. 
The context is truth about the sinful, empty life of their past Gentile lives and now their God-like life. What a contrast. You know, two people can be listening to the teaching of the Word of God or preaching of the Gospel. And one will hear the voice of Jesus very, very clear. And the other one can't wait to get out of there. Two men on the cross. Both cursed Jesus at the beginning. Halfway through, one said, Remember me when you come to your father's kingdom. He says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The other one? Rejected. Equally distant. Hearing the same thing. An eternal choice was made. Jesus speaks through his word to the believer. Again, in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. In John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to the Father to sanctify the believers by his truth. And he says, your word is truth. In John 8, 31 through 32, Jesus said, if you abide in my words, you are my disciple indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Paul said, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be anathema, the strongest word, damnation in the Greek, be it man or angel, Galatians 1.8. The only truth. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. Wow. You see, Jesus instructs and illuminates the believer through the Holy Spirit. He said much the night before he was betrayed. In John 14, 16 through 17, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, comforter, paracleo, one to come alongside, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of, listen, truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John fourteen twenty six, he says, But the helper... Pericaleo, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring your remembrance all things that I said to you. John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father. So the Father is going to send, but now he sends it to both God. The Spirit of truth, there it is again, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. You see, Jesus said he was first the truth. He said he's going to send another one just like him at the same source, God, the Spirit, as a representative of Jesus, truth. He's a silent witness of Jesus. The Holy Spirit never speaks of himself. One of the bad doctrines in the church is people call and worship on the Holy Spirit, which were never to. We're to worship Jesus. He's a silent witness. He never speaks of himself. He only speaks of the words of Jesus or Jesus himself. Verse 7 through 11 of chapter 16 says, 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to know to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, listen, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit does all this. He teaches. He illuminates. He guides. He directs. John 16, 12 through 14. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, there it is again, has come. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. And whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. He's the representative of Jesus. The silence witness, never bringing attention to himself. Jesus said to the apostles, they would be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In Acts 1.8. When the Holy Spirit came upon them. So this is the explanation for living like Christians. Without the teaching of God's word by Jesus through his Holy Spirit, you and I could not be Christians. We'd never make it. Notice thirdly, verse 22 to 24 comes a transformation, living like a Christian. Now, we're going to break them down to three aspects, but the threefold process here from verse 22 to 24 happens simultaneously all at the same time, not one after the other. These three things happen at the same time for them to be effective in our lives. But for the sake of analyzing, we break them down into three. First, the Apostle Paul declared the believer had been taught by Jesus to turn away from the old life of sin. Verse 22. Here's the negative. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. So Paul declared that they had been taught by Jesus to put off the former conduct. That's what he's saying in this. Okay, that Jesus taught them this. They heard the voice of Jesus. The tense is an infinitive aorist, middle voice, indicating the person is involved in the doing of it. This does not happen through osmosis or automatically. Okay? You can't just sit with your arms crossed. This doesn't work. Linsky, the Greek scholar, says, It is punctiliar action done once and once for all, a definite break at the point of salvation. So this is what it's talking about. When you were born again, you had a break with sin. Punctilium. Boom. You said the prayer. You asked him to save you. Your life radically changed at that point. The picture is of a garment being put off. You get home tonight. It's cold. You can have a jacket. You get home. You take it off. Just like that. The former conduct is the sinful lifestyle and behavior Prior to coming to Christ. That old man was crucified. When we repented. Romans 6. 6. Was crucified. Back there. 
punctilier. We are to reckon the old man dead daily. We'll see this in the next verse in Romans 6.11. So the old man was reckoned dead back then, and I've got to reckon him dead daily. We'll pick it up in the next verse, the process. That's the number two. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Notice then Paul described the past sinful behavior as the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. The word old, palios, means worn out or useless. This is the man after the image of the first Adam. The sinful man, the old man, the unrepentant man. The man that cannot be renewed apart from God. Fallen with a dominance in nature, his thoughts evil continually, as Genesis 6, 5 says. An enemy against God, as Romans 8, 7 says. The reason is that sinful nature never gets better. Look at the words. Grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. The nature of the old man is that he grows corrupt. A participle present middle. You are involved in it. Continuously, the old man. The old man is being corrupted progressively. He cannot be converted. He cannot be renewed, but must be crucified and put off. This year, I will celebrate 40 years in ministry. Where did it go? 43 since I've been born again. And my old man has not gotten one iota better in these 43 years. He is rotten to the core. I cannot depend on the old man. He's useless. He's corrupt. The bent and inclination of the old man is, according to notice, the deceitful lust. The word deceitful lust refers to the desires and evil cravings that use deceit to bring our ruin. The evil means anything that is outside of the norm of God's word. Nothing wrong with sex in the context of marriage. You take that out of marriage, then it becomes evil and destructive. You take a lie. Lying is absolutely wrong. But when lying is for saving lives, then God says, life is higher than that. You have the um, midwife's who lied to Pharaoh about the Hebrew women when they had babies. They, well, you know, they're lively. They just, well, by the time we get there, they're gone. You had Christians lie to the Nazis. Any Jews in here? Nope. Now, I'm not teaching situational ethics or valid clarifications, so be careful. Make, make sure you don't confuse that, okay? God puts life at a higher rate. Stealing is wrong. You go down here to Vons, grab a bag of groceries, run out, you're stealing. There's an earthquake, city's all under chaos, everybody's starving, you come across, and you, can, you, and you can walk in there and grab some food. Now it's not stealing, now it's survival, it's a whole different thing, right? 
So it's very important that we understand that. The problem with these cravings and lusts and desires of our sinful nature is that we think that if we can experience and go with some of these cravings and desires, that it will fulfill and satisfy me, but when in reality it's only temporal and it leaves me empty and, and, and as a slave of sin. Notice Paul declared then that the believer had been taught by Jesus to think differently. So he was taught to put off the old man. At the same time that this is happening, secondly, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind to think differently. Paul pointed out the transition from putting off the old man to putting on the new man. This is the in-between, what's, what's making a reality. He says, and be renewed, refers to the having existed before and different from the old. So, it's different from the old man which is useless. This is being renewed, not having existed before. It's different from the old. The infinitive here now is the present tense in the middle voice. In order, the middle voice is all there. That means you're involved. Anytime you have middle voice, you're involved. You can't say it just happens. It's not passive. You're involved. Indicating the constant and continuous participation of the believer going on. Literally, go on being renewed. Now, you put off the old man, fine. Now you, now you renew your mind. Right? You're doing it by the word of God and by the spirit of God, as we pointed out. This doesn't mean or imply that there's an absence of warfare. But actually, it guarantees there'll be warfare. <laughs> when you put off the old man and you begin to renew your, the spirit of your mind, as we're going to see... There's going to be warfare. When you and I were not Christians, I walk into a party and say, hey, you want a beer? Sure. No warfare. Hey, you want to do this? Yeah, let's do it. No warfare. Now as a Christian, there is warfare. This also does not contradict the one and for all putting off of the old man at salvation, but rather enables the believer to yield to the renewing spirit of the mind. I take the baggage off. Now I can think on the right things, right? I'm not being distracted or tempted by those other things. Now this does not imply a return to the unfallen state of Adam but the ability to negate, deny, and avoid sin and his power by the new divine nature given to us, but it never means perfection. Second Peter 1, 3-4. Paul pointed out, notice, where this takes place, in the spirit of your mind. There are some who interpret spirit to refer, in capital letters, the Holy Spirit. But the grammar construction does not agree with such interpretation. Nor is the phrase ever found in the Bible, the spirit of your mind. The reference is to our human spirit that is made alive by the new birth. 
The word spirit, pneuma, is the person who we really are after the likeness and image of God. The real you is spirit. Your body is just a shell to communicate. It's like putting your hand in a glove. How many of you think that that glove's really your hand? And it moves around and say, man, that's a smart glove. No, it's your hand inside. The real you and I is spirit. God is spirit. Those who worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. Work spirit according to his likeness, his image. That's the real us. The word mind now comprises the faculties of perception, understanding, and those feelings and judging and determination. So now they're under new management. Not the old man's management, but this process is pointing to the new man under management. Our outward newness of conduct and behavior is the result and evidence of our inward renewing by the process of the spirit of our mind that has been made alive by the gospel and the spirit of God. The process of the renewing of our mind enables us to live a sanctified life, set apart, apart from the old man, the old life. Then notice the third part. The Apostle Paul declared the believer had been taught by Jesus to turn towards the new life of God. This is the positive. The old man is the negative. Here's the positive. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul declared they had been taught by Jesus to put on the new man. Jesus taught them all this. It might have been a human teacher speaking. Jesus taught them this. You might have been here for years. But it's Jesus who has taught you if your heart's been open. The tense is the infinitive error's middle voice again, like put off, indicating the person is involved in doing it. You know by experience that when you're tempted, if you focus on the temptation, the old man will help you out. If you don't actively become involved in putting them off and renewing your mind, you will put on the old man, not the new man. Linsky, the Greek scholar, again says, it is punctiliar action done once and once for all, a definite break at the point of salvation. The picture is a a garment again being put on. But you continue through that middle process of renewing your mind to put them on all the time. The new man in Christ is to be put on replacing the old man. How many of us, when I grew up, you know, come September for school, you'd always go shopping, you know. Get a couple of pair of Levi's, two bags of T-shirts at Penny's, and wingtips at Hardy's in Covina. And when you went to school that first day, you didn't say, well, you know, I just love those old shoes. I'm going to wear them the first day. No, no, no. You threw those suckers out. They all had holes in everything. You put on the new ones. 
You went to school with new shoes, new pants, new t-shirt. This is what we're to desire and to do always. The new man. The new man in Christ is to be put on replacing that old man. The word new there is kinos. It means new in quality and reason in contrast to the old, useless, out-of-date old man. The new man after the image of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.45. The one manifesting a godly life and behavior by the renewing of the mind. The Christian. Listen to Colossians 3.10. It's a sister epistle, so he writes kind of the same thing from a different perspective. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. That's what Christian means, Christ-like. Godliness, God-like. Paul described the one responsible for the creation of the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 24. God did it through the new birth, as we've said, according to what God is himself. By the preaching of the gospel, by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The phrase according to God indicates likeness. God is the model, man is the copy. God made the provisions for the quality of life in himself. We are participants, but God did everything to get us there. Are we clear on that? Before the cross, there's no boasting. You have no part in it. Just believe by faith. After the cross, you better roll up your sleeves. Two different perspectives. The first is in righteousness. It means the state of him who is as he ought to be by right living towards God and man. In holiness means obedience to the word of God, piety towards God, right living pertaining to God. You see, both are qualified by the word truth, Alethea again. The same as in verse 21. It means what is true in any matter under consideration as prescribed by the scriptures. Being a new creation, all things being passed away and everything becoming new. In 2 Corinthians 5.17. I put that verse in my dad's tombstone. Because he got such a bad rap through my brother. <laughs> New creation. Absolutely great. Can't wait to see him. Won't be long. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being filled as Matthew 5, 6 says. Free from sin and the power no longer being a slave of sin, Romans 6, 6. You see, you and I are the only ones that know what I'm talking about. You and I know what we were into what we did. Other people are clueless if they haven't been free. I used to think the sin was fun. I'd go two, three days without sleep and little food, and I'd come home and I'd go, Oh, that was living. No, that was dying. You're killing yourself. You're just young and your body puts up with it, but you'll get it at the end. 
It's dying. It's not living. It's deception. It's destructive for you and everyone else around you and everyone connected. It's being a doer of the word, as James 1.23 says. Now I can hit the mark. You can hit the mark. By the grace of God. You know, it's like the two Eskimos that were talking in the barn. They were drinking, <clears throat> getting pretty south. And so the one Eskimo starts to tell the other one, says, you know, I have these two dogs. They're always, always fighting. One's black, the other one's white. They're fighting all the time. And so the other Eskimo said, who wins? He says, the one I feed the most. Whoa. Who wins in your life, the old man or the new man? It's who you feed the most. You get into the word of God yourself just to read that God may minister to you through the Bible once a year at least. Then they just study the Bible yourself. Pick a little book, then go to the bigger book. Did you go to church and get taught by your pastor? Did you're involved in ministry? You're teaching others. You see? Very, very important. Are you being fed spiritually? I'm not here to tell you not to hear anything else, not to hear a second. No. But what you put in comes out. So if you're going to hear things, make sure it's not trash. If you're going to hear some secular music, you know, some that's, you know, like ballads or stuff like that, fine. But if you get into like rap that's just pornography and words, it's insulting, degrading. What do you see in movies? What the kind of stuff you read? All that stuff. You feed the flesh. Or do you feed the new man? We reap and we sow, right? The compromise or disobedience to reckon the old man dead, renew the spirit of our mind and put on the new man will result in defeat if we compromise and disobey. Living in a carnal life, though you're born again, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3, Paul says, I cannot speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, as to babes in Christ. There's divisions, there's arguing, there's this, there's that, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, you, you come to Christ. Experiencing willful defeat, like Paul, by trusting himself, his own strength and abilities in Romans 7. Romans 7 is not the warfare. That that I want to do, I end up doing. That that I end up doing, I don't want to do. A regiment that I am. That's not warfare. That's willful defeat. That's an autobiographical sketch of Paul. He thought after being a Christian at one point he could do it himself. And he says, a regiment that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Praise be Lord Jesus Christ. He moves out to chapter 8, life in the spirit. Romans 7 is life in the flesh. As a Christian. Ooh, willful defeat. Because you think you can do it. You think, well, I can handle it. Nah, I can go to this party. Nah, I can go with this chick. I can do it. You know, okay. And then, oops. And the classic guy, why would God allow me to... <laughs> I mean, God, God didn't take you, put you in your girlfriend's apartment at two in the morning. You did. Willful defeat. We are to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust, Romans 13, 14. 
because we're able to not make provisions. The putting off of the old man, renewing the spirit of our mind and putting on the new man must occur at the same time for true and ultimate victory. The warfare is constant due to our two natures. Listen to Galatians 5, 16 through 17. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. Here's the warfare. So that you cannot do the things you would or wish. Galatians 5, 6, and 7. That's the warfare. Not Romans 7. Pick up a commentary. Romans 7. It says the warfare. Throw it away. It's worthless. They just destroy Romans. The warfare is winnable. Listen to Galatians 5, 17. I, I say then. Walk in the spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know that to be true. When you have walked in the spirit. You have not fulfilled the lust of flesh. Nor I. When we haven't. We've eaten it big time. Every time. The armor is provided for us in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord. The power of his might put on the whole armor of God. And he goes on. The reason, because we don't fight against flesh and blood, principalities, powers, and the beings of darkness. And he begins with the putting on the armor. All the way through to chapter 18, he ends up with prayer. Part of the armor. Wow. If you have put on the new man, then you're living in true righteousness and holiness, walking in the Spirit. That is our potential. That is God's desire for us. That is God's will. That is what I can have if I yield and obey to God and not trust myself. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Paul says, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Then the life that I now live, I live by the love and the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Reckoning the old man dead, Renewing your mind, putting on the new man. All one. And so, this is the transformation. Living like a Christian. So, we've looked at the positive side of the new man. To live like Christ. The affirmation of living like a Christian. The explanation for living like Christians. And the transformation living like a Christian. He's done it all. We should make the best of it. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for your word. That we obey you, we yield to you, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be safe. To repent of your sins if you don't know him. Maybe you're over the internet. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you agree that Jesus, God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, and that he can forgive you of your sin, then this is your prayer to God, repenting from your sin, asking him to save you. Right where you sit, you can say this and he's going to save you right now. 
Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Amen.